So you get this call from the teacher saying, you know, we need to have a conference in regards to little Johnny. And um, you hang up the phone and you're immediately flooded with emotions that may seem irrelevant to the situation, but are very valid and are felt by every parent who gets this phone call. Um, there's guilt, there's um, shame, there's sadness, there's frustration, there's confusion. Maybe your intuition has given you some heads up that something's not quite right, but you're not really sure what it is. And you're not really sure if what you're seeing at home is what they're seeing at school, because those can be very different things too. Welcome to the Individual Matters Podcast. I'm Andrew Caton, and in this episode, we'll look at what to do if you're worried your child is struggling in school. My guest is Kim Morin, an academic language therapist, sounds and symbols specialist, and executive function coach on Colorado's Western Slope. In this episode, she's going to talk about the first steps you should take when contacted by the school, what mindset you need to adopt, who's in charge of this process, how to work with the school's educational team, basic options available to you and your student, as well as their associated pros and cons, costs, and much more. This episode is a must-listen for all parents who have school-age students. Over the next hour, we're going to cover a lot, so you may need to listen more than once. I'll put some of Kim's recommendations in the show description, and if you're watching the video version, I'll include info there as well. Now, let's get back to the episode. So, so you get the call, and your precious child has now become a problem in school, um, whether it's difficulties with educational things such as uh, reading, spelling, writing, math, or maybe they're having um, behavioral issues that are becoming more prevalent all of a sudden um, that don't seem to make sense. So you get this call from the teacher saying, you know, we need to have a conference in regards to little Johnny. And... Um, you hang up the phone and you're immediately flooded with emotions that may seem irrelevant to the situation, but are very valid and are felt by every parent who gets this phone call. Um, there's guilt, there's um, shame, there's sadness, there's frustration, there's confusion. Maybe your intuition has given you some heads up that something's not quite right, but you're not really sure what it is. And you're not really sure if what you're seeing at home is what they're seeing at school, because those can be very different things too. So I would imagine that most parents probably experience these emotions, at least on some level. I mean, everybody's going to handle things a little bit differently, but it's pretty common to go to experience, to have these feelings, right? It's very common. Uh, every parent who gets this phone call goes through these similar um, emotions. It's almost a, a grieving process um, because you have these preconceived notions that you have of your child um, and these great and wonderful things that you expect or want them to have the opportunity to do, if not do them. And so you have to go through this grieving process to kind of come to the point of, this is really all about Johnny, not about me. And so what do I need to do to make sure that he can have as fulfilling a life as possible and independent? And so initially, if they get that call, then maybe they share it with a spouse, maybe they share it with Johnny, um, probably they, if they share it with their family, they start getting um, input that may or may not be helpful. So there's probably kind of a sorting out process there. There is, and at the same time, 
these types of situations typically run in families. So you may find information that you didn't know about. You might be having conversations with family members that open up a whole... Um, like a whole Pandora's box of emotion. Of emotion <laughs> and, of, and of experiences with family members that they didn't know. Maybe Uncle John um, was a railroad engineer and he was incredibly mechanical, but he couldn't read. Or maybe Aunt Susie was a chef and she had all she could do to read the recipes. Um, but she threw things together in a miraculous way and made millions of dollars doing that or whatever. But was very successful. So it's you're sometimes speaking with family members can be helpful. You have to remember to gauge that with a bit of some questioning as to whether or not that's the right thing for your child in this moment in time. Um, so that's really helpful to talk to friends and family because as we know, two-thirds of the students in the state of Colorado read below a proficient level. So most likely, you're going to come across a lot of people that have similar experiences and may know people that can help you out, um, either emotionally or academically for your child, or give you some good advice. So this is really common, not only the emotions, but the how widespread learning challenges are. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, so the school wants you um, typically to do more at home. That's going to be their recommendation on that, probably on that first phone call, or in your parent-teacher conferences, or with conversations that you have with a teacher at the school bus stop when you're picking up your kids um, at school. So they may ask you to read more at home. They may ask you to do more math at home. You might just want them, they want you to be doing more worksheets and things of that nature. And it makes it feel like you're the one to blame, like you haven't been doing enough. And the reality is that's probably not true. And while that may be helpful to your child, it's not going to be the answer. Um, and that's, that's kind of what you need to remember is that this is not your fault per se. It's not something you did or you didn't do. It wasn't dropping him on his head when he was two months old. It was, it's generally something that is genetic that's just a different development of their neurological system and that needs to be addressed in a different way than the general public. Interesting. And maybe many parents have been doing a lot of this at home. Absolutely. And so now they have that additional guilt piled on top, like maybe they didn't do enough or maybe exactly. they did it the wrong way. Exactly. Ouch. But then, as we all know, there's no manual to raising your kids or teaching them. So that's something that you have to also get past because then you become the advocate for your child. And that's where the rest of this conversation kind of flows. Um, so a lot of times when they want you to come in and talk to them more, um, there's a lot of um, terminology that's used that can be very confusing. And so the first meeting that you have with the teachers in the school should really just be an absorption of the information that they're giving you. Not necessarily expecting you to solve any problems on that first meeting, but an opportunity for you to see what your child is doing in the classroom and what behaviors or what skills they truly have. That's our first step, is to really become 
a team with the people at the school that are working with your child. Um, and so that's really a baseline for where you go from here. If they truly suspect a reading or writing or spelling disability, um, they're going to request that y they do more intensive intervention with them. Okay. So that's really helpful, I think, just to maybe not put so much pressure on yourself as a parent. Because um, I, I guess many parents would think about what do I need to have, what do I need to know, what do I need to have prepared in front of me, what do I need to be prepared to say. But what you're, what you're saying right now is that they need to go in and just kind of listen and absorb and, and understand that it's going to take some time to process this because this is a lot of uh, jargon in, in their minds they might not be familiar with. And so that's okay. Just take notes and get Absolutely. back to it? Uh, take notes. There are also um, some of us in the community that are um, willing to go to some of these meetings with them and kind of help um, translate the jargon that the school uses. Um, they do try to explain it, but they're specialists in their field typically, and so that's sometimes a difficult transition for them to make um, to kind of generalize the information. Um, but if you know, there are a lot of learning disabilities. Dyslexia is the number one in our school system right now. Um, and 80% of the learning disability students are dyslexic um, that are in the special ed system right now. Um, and so it's sometimes difficult to figure out what exactly is going on. And so that's why listening the first time around and taking notes or having someone with you, even if it's another family member or a friend who can kind of listen without the emotional involvement, can sometimes be very helpful. And it doesn't have to be a specialist. It can just be someone who's not as emotionally tied to the situation as you are that can hear. It's, it's like going to the doctor. If you go to the doctor alone, you hear the word cancer and everything else that they say is out the window. It could be a minor form. It could be something easily figured out and fixed or healed or cured. But if you don't hear anything else, all you hear is the, the C word, right? So it's similar to that in the sense that you having somebody along, and you can bring anybody you want to according to law, whether the school recommends that or not. Um, and so I think that's kind of a helpful suggestion is to have somebody with you that can maybe not take notes, but can listen and, and hear the words that are truly being said, not the intonation, not the emotional component that Gosh, goes along with it. That's a great tip. That is a great tip. Yeah. So instead of preparing in advance, maybe just bring somebody, acknowledge that you probably are emotional and probably will be emotional during the meeting and you have somebody there as kind of a, uh, a scribe or a, a better listener to kind of get down some of the details that you can review later. Right. And uh, the other part of that too is I, I have had parents in the past where one parent will is ready to have a meeting, ready to be there, what, a, what time, what day, I'll be there, I'll cancel whatever is going on that day. And the other parent doesn't want to go. Being that this is a family-related, genetic-linked um, disability or potentially a disability, there's a parent that has had difficulties with this same issue. 
And so there's this PTSD type um, emotional component that they walk into the school and they break out in a rash or in a sweat. And that happens more times than I can count. So whereas some teachers will look at that as the parent doesn't want to be involved, truthfully, it's more a matter of their inability to function under that environmental condition. And so I, a lot of times in the past I've asked if we could meet out on the playground after school or if we could meet in the lunchroom or the music room. Those are typically places where these students have found their um, quiet, happy place in their past. And so being able to transfer that meeting to a different place, different setting, not the library typically, not a classroom, not a conference room, but someplace generic, maybe the stage in the, in the gymnasium, or maybe a table set up in the PE gym. And that can greatly reduce the tension and allow people to be a participant. Is that a recommendation for teachers, or can a parent request that? A parent can request that okay. um, if, they're, if they know that. Gotcha. And sometimes that means th a conversation beforehand with the spouse saying, hey, how do you feel about this? I know you had difficulties in school. If we met in the PE gym, would that be a more comfortable place for you to meet? Those are not questions you would think to ask, but hopefully this podcast can kind of enlighten you to the fact that you have a, a, an adult who has been through most often trauma when you look back on how we treated these students back when we were kids. Um, it's very different than it is now. And um, so that's something that you really have to pay attention to. Yeah, adults remember this, don't they? They remember if they were held back, it's, it is traumatic. They remember if they had a learning disability or even if it was a perceived learning disability. They right. remember that these conversations occurred and, and how they felt. So that's probably right there as a trigger and pulls well, them right back to that feeling. And, and in addition to that, if you've ever been called to the principal's office for your child, you know that sinking feeling that you get in your gut because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you remember being called into the principal's office as a kid. And, and so maybe these, maybe these difficulties your child is having in school are beginning to kind of come out in behavioral issues that have not typically been a problem in the past, but may be getting worse because of more challenges in school. And so it's that same feeling of going to the principal's office. Wow. Okay. That Actually, that's a good lead into something else that we talked about before uh, setting up this podcast when we we're going over topics. You mentioned the importance of mindset from the very beginning for a parent to understand what their role is. Can you just touch on that basically? So, yeah. So we, we tend to rely on the teachers and the school to be the experts and to know what to do with and for our child. The reality is, is that you know your child better than anyone, even though they may be spending a significant portion of their day with your child. And so really, you are the director, the advocate for your child. It's like being in a school bus. You're the driver, and all of these people that you have supporting you educationally and emotionally are sitting in the back seat. And they're giving you guidance, but it's ultimately your decision as to where to turn to help your child go down that road of success and development and progress. 
Wow, that might be a new perspective for parents listening to this. Do you find that's common knowledge that the parents are driving this bus? No, that's a good question. Typically, they're not. Um, while, while the schools will promote a team um, kind of approach to this, and that's exactly what it should be, um, the reality is parents tend to give up their control because they feel that these are the experts and they should know what's right for their child. But if it, it tends to give up your control and in doing so, you lose some of your, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't keep the playing field level for all people on the team. And you really are the one in charge of your child's schooling and support. So you need to get what you need for your child and that should over, overshadow everything else. So that mindset needs to frame up the rest of this discussion. Absolutely. Um, obviously be respectful, don't be um, 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 contentious, but as a parent, you are driving the bus and you get to make decisions, and that's kind of what we're going to go through here when we, you talk about some of the different first steps and then some of the later options. Yeah, and, and there are a lot more of those. Um, there's a lot more to be said about that, but I think that's for another conversation, what happens at the first IEP meeting or what happens at the next meeting where you actually have to set up a plan for your child. Because that, that's a completely more in-depth mindset than what we're gonna cover here today, okay. I think. Um, okay. I think today is mostly what's our next step? Where do I go next? And, and there are several options. You can do nothing and just wait it out and see if little Johnny in kindergarten or first grade does better with more support from the school. Um, they may decide to put him on a read plan, which is Colorado's um, uh, answer to um, early intervention. Um, and it will identify that they are reading at a particular level and they're gonna provide some intervention and it's gonna, they're gonna monitor the success of that. That doesn't necessarily provide special education intervention and it doesn't label your child as n any particular learning disability, but it does sing single them out in the sense that there's a group of kids that always go to the reading lab or to the library at this time. Does that require this initial meeting or conference, or is this kind of a decision that can happen without that? I mean, actually putting the child on the read plan. And then my second question is, what grades can be put on a read plan? Is this for all ages, all grades? Okay, so the read plan can be for all ages, all grades. Um, they try to find them earlier on, K through three, which is when we're teaching them to read as opposed to um, they're learning to read instead of reading to learn if that makes sense. Um, and so, yes, the read plan can be used all ages, particularly for students who are not quite at their peers' level, typically. But if they're coming close, then the read plan falls away. Um, whether that's the right thing for that child or not. So that's, that's another key thing to think about. Um, and then, I'm sorry, what was your other question? Uh, my other question was, how do they request, or how does oh. a child get placed on the read plan so at this early step or this early stage? Any, any intervention in this read plan has to be approved by the, the parent. And it's kind of a good first step, but 
it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be successful enough for your student to be at peer level or grade level. Um, so um, you can do nothing, and, um, and that's a perfectly fine thing to do, especially if your student is struggling but not struggling terribly. Um, it's something to try first. It's free of cost. And by nothing, what what specifically do you mean? Just after you have this initial conference, you decide just to wait and see. Is that what you mean? It, you can wait and see. They can they can provide some extra input with them being on a read plan, um, okay. which is kind of a basic first step. Um, they can put them on a read plan. It will give them anywhere from thirty minutes to an hour of extra small group instruction but it's typically going over what they did in class. So it's just a reiteration of what was done in the general classroom. It doesn't provide any extra support, typically. Um, and um, it's important to know that, as we said earlier, um, two-thirds of the students in Colorado are not reading at a proficient level. So your child is not particularly in an, a unique situation. So, um, and especially for here in um, Grand Junction, 61% um, didn't meet expectations in reading and 72% didn't meet expectations in math. So your child's not alone. And some of that is, of course, COVID-based, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't an issue. So that's kind of a double-edged sword. Is it fairly common, this step or this option for parents it's, to take this? It's incredibly common. I would say that almost, I mean, a lot of students have them on a read plan, but the kids don't even know it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, they'll have extra, extra time with teachers to, to do certain things from class, but it doesn't necessarily pull them out. They might do, um, say, Lexia, which is a computer-based reading intervention plan where they have 20 kids at a computer com that are sitting in a computer lab working on this. So you talked about how common these reading issues are. Is that the consideration that drives parents to do nothing, or are there other reasons why they might not move forward with any of the other steps that you're going to talk about? Well, there are a lot of reasons, and, and PTSD kind of comes back into play here because parents uh, remember what happened to kids that were on going to a special intervention program when they were a kid, and they don't want that type of... Um, issue for their child. So um, kids are, can be bullies, and they look for the things that are different in other, other people, and so that's what they're really good at. Um, so they don't fear of labels. Um, they don't want other people knowing their child has an issue, and, and that's totally valid. Um, if this works, if you choose, if you make this choice, though, you have to know that there's a point at which you need to, to no longer do nothing. And third grade seems to be the cutoff point, which is, as I said before, the difference between learning to read and reading to learn. And so there's no more reading instruction typically after third grade. So if your child doesn't get support before third grade, then that child will never catch up to its peers. I say never typically do not catch up to their peers. If you get intervention prior to third grade, 
you have a much higher rate of being able to get your child to be at grade level and stay there. So that's kind of where the cutoff point is. So say you decide, as a parent, you decide to do nothing and your child's in kindergarten or first grade. When you get to that third grade level, do the does the school come back and kind of talk to you about this this um, threshold point, or is that something you just need to be aware of since you're driving the bus that you have to monitor? You have to monitor that, and and in in ideal situations, knowing what you know from this podcast, I hope you'll make that decision at the end of second grade and go, wait, we have a problem here, and we need to jump on it. And we've tried other things, or we've tried letting the school do what they do. Um, in kindergarten and first grade and second grade even, but that hasn't gotten my child to where they need to be. And so now I need to request something more. That makes sense. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about, because with each of these options, what I really like about this episode, is you're going to give us some pros and cons for each one. Do you want right. to go into the the pros and cons of the do absolutely. nothing option? Yeah, absolutely. So um The pros are that it allows students to develop at their own pace. Yes, there are going to be some students who may have a slight delay in their development mentally in the neuronal pathways in our brain that haven't quite solidified for reading. And so, yes, sometimes more time is all it needs. If a student is um, only having slight difficulties, that's a more possible option. And... um, there's also less stress and um, stereotype threat that we get from our peers and from teachers, for that matter. Um, we're human, too. And so we tend to treat people with a disability differently. And that may be, a- and whether they're diagnosed or identified or not, it's still going to happen. But it may be less if we don't have a diagnosis. Okay. So you're touching on the stress of being pulled out of class and other classmates notice and then right. it's brought to the into the light. Right. And and a lot of things don't these things don't play out until they get on the playground, places where they typically feel very comfortable, um, whether it's in the cafeteria, socializing at lunchtime or on the playground or PE, you'll see kids begin to tease or bully or or snicker when they get pulled out to go to an intervention small group, or everybody knows who's going to special ed. No matter how delicately you try to approach that in the classroom, kids are not stupid, and and they tend to be, um, they can be hurtful without even realizing it, and and teachers can be too, um, we find, without meaning to be. So those are really relatable and valid concerns, reasons to shy away from doing anything. Yeah, but the cons are really important here because as a student, if you identify this student as having difficulties in, say, kindergarten or first grade, um, you need to figure out if they're catching up to their peers or if they're falling further behind or if they're not making any progress at all when all of their peers are moving forward. Um, They also, the students still may get picked on. It doesn't matter that they haven't been identified. If Johnny's asked to read out loud in class and he can't do that, then he's going to get picked on, whether he's labeled or not. Um, And these troubles can become more behavioral 
And you might start seeing Johnny get called into the principal's office more often for inappropriate behavior. Maybe he pushed a kid on the playground or he pulled somebody's hair in line coming, waiting to come back inside. These can be defense mechanisms that, you know, Johnny pulled Katie's hair when she was in line coming in because he knew there was going to be reading when they got back into the classroom. So I have lots of students who are perfectly happy sitting at the principal's office watching people come and go and waiting out their time for them to be able to go back to class because now they know they got out of reading or spelling or whatever it happens to be. So I think that's another problem that can escalate and also create some bullying. They become the bullies. They become the bad kids. They, become, they lose some of that social um, interaction with their peers that are on a positive level. And so that can be kind of damaging too. And I don't think we give that enough credit. And then they become the problem child. And they end up in the behavioral room right? when they really Gosh. don't deserve to be there. That's so sad. It's our lack of ability to, mit to uh, mitigate those situations and to identify them. Oh, wait, Johnny does that every time when we come inside. Um, and this is our schedule. Hmm, maybe there's a connection. We Teachers have too many kids to be looking at to m sometimes see that as a pattern of behavior. Um, and it's important for the parents to know that they have to start asking those questions. Wait a minute, when are you seeing this type of behavior or when are you seeing this kind of stress? You know, Johnny always gets a stomach ache just before the spelling test. So well, these are really good things to look for as a parent then if you're hearing absolutely. this. Absolutely. I mean, not doing nothing doesn't mean you're not doing anything. Um, it just means you're not seeking outside intervention. So I think that's key to know, too. There's never a nothing where you don't do anything. The school's either providing more time with a teacher or with a teacher aide, or you're doing more on your end at home with homework and so forth. So that it doesn't mean you're not doing anything. It just means that you're not providing any outside source of intervention. That makes sense. Any yeah. other cons to the to this option yeah you you're, you're going to start seeing behavior at home too because th what happens in eight hours of their day at school is going to eventually overflow into what you see at home more um, resistance with doing homework you're going to see meltdowns that happen because you ask them to set the table and you're n totally confused at what happened oh johnny's just going through a behavioral phase or he's just going through this, this I don't want to do anything you tell me phase, which is really common for us as parents to just attribute it to, oh, this will pass kind of a thing. But as things become more difficult at school, you'll see the overflow at home. And that can make, you know, that can make your home time, which is supposed to be a safety zone, more difficult and less enjoyable. And I would imagine for kids with certain temperaments, if they're holding it together during the school day, despite all those, all that anxiety, then they get in the car, they, they get home, and then they blow out. Exactly. I have a lot of students that lose it the minute they get in the car to go home. And that can be, you know, 15 minutes of just a meltdown. And then when you get home, things seem to level off. They're exhausted from their meltdown and their day at school. And uh, sometimes the sports and the activities afterwards are helpful, and sometimes it puts them into an overload, and we start seeing troubles with sleeping patterns, and we see kids on video games a lot to try and kind of zone out the world and, and be in their own little place. So these are all things that you'll start to see at home from 
not addressing the issue head on. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way because some students do resolve from that. Um, some students don't get that bad. Um, but that may also be something that happens later on because we haven't addressed the issue earlier. So that's something to think about. So if you choose not to do nothing, like I said, it's not doing anything. It's just not doing anything intensive. So another option might be to have the school do an evaluation. Okay. That is sometimes a difficult thing to get the school to do. Um, even with teacher agreement that Johnny has an issue or test scores that might not be very good. But um, then the process for that is the parent has to write a letter and state why they want Johnny to be tested and what they want Johnny to be tested for. And they sign it and date it. And by law, both Colorado law and, and federal law, and also it's in the District 51 handbook, for our district, they have 60 days to either respond with a letter saying that no, Johnny doesn't need to be tested or with the results. The school has 60 days to reply to get back with the parent? Yes. Okay. Um, so that would be your first step if you wanted the school to do something. Are there any resources? And I, this probably gets into a, a, another line of, or another podcast or a whole another line of discussion, but for many parents, it's probably an overwhelming feeling. Okay, now I have to prepare a letter. What do I put in it? What specifically are my concerns? What do I need to say in order to trigger an additional action? Um, is that something, I don't know if you want to get into that in this episode, but is there is there anywhere they can go for help with that? Or is that... Yeah, there are. There, um, there are a lot of online resources that you can go to that have um, letters that um, example letters that you can use and you just plug in your information. You want to use as much data as you can and less emotion, but you definitely want to put observations that you've had of your child. But um, if you go to understood.com or online or ldonline.org or Colorado Kids, which is uh, cokids.org, or parent, uh, Peak Parent Center, which is a Denver-based parent information and advocacy center, and their webpage is peak.org, all caps. And those are great resources to know what your rights are, to know kind of how to give you some additional information on what are the next steps, and also um, letters that you can write. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Yeah. So back to, I guess what you were talking about. So you have 60 days, the school has 60 days to get back with the parent. Absolutely. And so after that, um, so there will have to be a meeting that says, yes, Johnny does need an intervention and sign all the paperwork. Um, even though you've sent a letter, which starts the ball, the ball rolling, um, you will need to sign a waiver that says, yes, indeed, I would like Johnny to be um, assessed and you have the right to do that to the schools. Um, you want to make sure in, in your letter or in your um, meeting that the areas you're concerned about are being addressed in the evaluation. A lot of times the school will say, well, Johnny's just having trouble reading. If he's having trouble reading, he's probably having trouble spelling. 
And if he's having trouble spelling or if he's having behavioral issues associated with it, you might want to have other areas like ADHD or behavioral considerations to be evaluated also. Um, if you're going to do this, you might as well get your full buck's worth. Okay, and the parent can request all of this? Yes. They can make that plea or they can make that pitch when they meet with the, the to sign the paperwork that allows the school to do the evaluation. The pros of this are that um, it it really allows, so first of all, it doesn't cost anything. That's the best part. Um, the good part is, is that um, it sometimes the reports that are done are not always accepted by the school. And so obviously, if the school does the report, they are going to accept the information. Um, also, if you do it at school, there's less disruption for pulling a kid out of school to be, have them tested. So they're in an environment they're already familiar with. Um, and then um, the other thing that's kind of nice is that the personnel, a lot of times they will do an observation. And so it's easy for them to go into the classroom, the, uh, the evaluators to go into the classroom and observe. And it's, they already know the people, the teachers, they already know what the teaching style is like for that, that teacher. So that helps them to understand where also they might need to evaluate that student. So there are some definite pros associated with doing it at the school. The cons are the evaluators know the teachers at the school and their buddies with them, and so they may have preconceived notions of this child or of the parents, and so they may not necessarily assess the areas where you've requested them to evaluate. Um, another thing is, um, it can be comprehensive, but not entirely comprehensive. Um, they do not perform assessments to the level of an educational um, psychologist who will be able to provide far more detail. But they have a pretty, I mean, it is concise, but it's not exact. It's not an exact science. And then um, sometimes because of the, the assessments they do can be interpreted differently. Uh, I've heard several times where a school will say, well, that assessment was done, but it's not done in a classroom setting or a school setting. So we can't necessarily take the information at its face value. Well, the same thing can be said for what happens at the school. Um, so th I think that's an important thing to remember. Yeah, those are good those, that's really great information. A another thing that comes up, I know, certainly in our world is understanding the difference between a school-based educational classification of a learning disability that results from these evaluations, which is not the same as a clinical diagnosis of a specific learning disorder. So it's an educational classification that results from this school-based evaluation, not a clinical diagnosis that results from being evaluated by say a psychologist. Yes, they do make that delineation, which I think is rather short-sighted because if a clinical diagnosis pulls up something that they haven't pulled up in the educational, then you are definitely going to have that clinical aspect reflected in the educational evaluation in some form or fashion, whether it's something they identify with their evaluation or if it's just a behavior the teacher's seeing. So I don't think that you can negate the value of 
an educational assessment done by an educational psychologist in a clinical setting, quote unquote, clinical setting. So uh, that's something to be aware of. Um, and a lot of times the school will say, well, you know, because it's not done in the school setting with a school evaluation, then it doesn't hold as much value. And they will often tell you that. They will include the clinical evaluation if you have one, but they won't necessarily make their determination. And the other key thing to notice here or note here is that the school does not have the authority to make a diagnosis. They can identify areas that may be problematic and call it a specific learning disability and provide intervention for it based on the scores, but that is not a diagnosis. And that's key. The only person that can diagnose is an educational psychologist or a medical professional who generally calls the educational <laughs> psychologist right. to, make the, uh, to, to make the diagnosis. So that's really important to note. Okay, so the parents choose this option, move forward with a school-based evaluation, the evaluation is completed, then what happens after that? Um, after that, then they will meet again to discuss the, um, the results, which is, again, filled with a lot of jargon. So I would highly recommend bringing someone in to help you with that information. And then the other key factor to note is that you do not have to accept their evaluation. You as the parent are driving this bus, remember? And so you have the choice to go outside the school to find a more detailed or a more accurate, in your opinion, view of this child. Do parents, are, or are parents provided with the results of this evaluation before the meeting, or do they show up and it's, there you go, and then you have to try to make sense of it at that moment? Well, in a, in a typical situation, they will show up to the meeting and have the information. It will not be provided to the parent ahead of time. And that's where the sticking point comes and what most parents don't know is they can ask for that information ahead of time and review it and maybe contact somebody and ask for a you know a quick consult of the outcome of these you know these these numbers and what I should ask you know as a parent what I should ask for when I go into that meeting that kind of goes into a whole nother um set of information, but do know that if you ask for it in advance, then you have the ability to make that, to, to analyze that report and the outcomes and to talk with some other people about what that means. What does that tell me? Are you saying that the parent does not need to make a decision or commit to anything at that meeting? Exactly. And, and that's another key point. That's a very good point is that you will go into these meetings and they will have a plan in place based on the information that they have um, in front of them. And you as the parent do not have to sign that you agree with it. You can sign that you were at the meeting, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with the intervention or agree with the evaluation. So you can take that home and review it. They don't like that. They want you to sign it immediately but that's your prerogative as the parent. Okay. That's a big process, and as you mentioned, there's a lot that I'm sure that you could talk about tangentially related to that. Before you move on to the next option that you're going to list, is there anything else 
about the school evaluation that you want to cover? Oh, and uh, one of the other things that has begun happening since COVID and since I'm not sure how to determine, how, how to identify this, but there, the number of evaluators that we have locally has been a challenge. I know they've been hiring over the summer, so this may no longer be an issue, but I have had a few students that were tested um, by the school or evaluated rather by the school that were done via computer. And it was on a student who struggled with computers to begin with. So their outcome was kind of a waste of everyone's time because you couldn't really identify if these were issues that the student had in the classroom or if they were just issues that were from being on a computer and doing it via video, which they had somebody there that was in person that could correct the child during the evaluation, but that also negates the effective or the outcome of so you have questions about maybe validity or Absolutely. That. So you do need to ask questions about who's doing it. Where are they doing this evaluation? Is it here? Or are they getting bussed somewhere? Or is it via computer? Or how is it being, how is it being done? Um, like I said, I do know that they have, the school district has, uh, here has hired on more um, evaluators or diagnosticians, as they're called by the school, or school psychologists. Um, but I don't know that that has been resolved entirely. So you do need to ask questions about how it's being done and who's doing it. So you're going to get into next some options that are more um, uh, outside the school, more private setting, private sector options. But it, there's probably a lot of resources that parents can reach out to at any point during this process to get some more information, to get some questions answered. To um, And I guess what I'm hearing from you is, as a parent, you don't need to feel rushed through this. There's never a moment when you have to sign on the dotted line to, to, to say this or that, or to kind of, you can take your time, make sure that you understand the process, that you're comfortable with the process. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, absolutely. At the same time, the emotional component of your child being singled out causes you to feel like you need to do something sooner rather than later. Um, the key things to remember in that regard are if you aren't putting, providing intervention for your child before third grade, you typically need two hours of intervention after third grade for that student every day in order to get them back on track versus an hour a day, which is or 45 minutes to an hour a day before third grade. So, so you do have kind of an impetus to move things forward. Um, and Everybody wants this child to do better sooner. The reality is most intervention programs take two years to go through, meeting four times a week for an hour a day. So this isn't something that's gonna get resolved immediately. If it is dyslexia, there is no cure. So what we're hoping for is a more independent, more functioning student in reading anyway. So while we think we're going to jump on this and really hit it hard and cure this child so he's reading at grade level or she is reading at grade level, but the reality is, is this is a long-term plan that probably won't see favorable results in what we consider to be successful for two to three years. 
And so the this evaluation, if there is a finding and the team decides to move forward with some supports, that generates an IEP, an individualized education program. Or a 504. Or a 504. And I know uh, uh, the IEPs typically have a reval period of about three years, right? So yes. they'll go back through and, and look at the look at where the child is at that point. Yes. Um, and and but that reevaluation is not the only opportunity for you to jump in and change things. You can have an IEP or a 504 meeting at any point in time. You could have one every week if you wanted to, according to law. Now, you won't win, win friends and influence people that way, but that's definitely an option. If you have a severe case, um, you may need more feedback from a teacher or you may need more um, information or, you know, you can, things can happen that cause changes at any point in time, loss of a, ch a loss of a parent or a grandparent or a car accident or any number of things that could change how your child is proceeding and what needs to change with their IEP or 504 to support that child and still move making progress and moving forward, but maybe not at the same rate that the initial IEP was set out to achieve at the end of the year. So those are... There, you can have these meetings at any point in time, and things may change. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So stay on top of it. Everybody's different, but stay on top of it. And, Absolutely. And, and do as a parent what you need to do. Yeah. So the other options that you have, um, my company, Vector um, LLC, um, is strictly for reading, and that's what our specialty is, reading and executive function, which pretty much go hand in hand. Um, we do an assessment. It is a limited assessment, only for reading and spelling um, and executive function. There's a plethora of other options that could be out there for more comprehensive evaluation, but that is not what our company does. Um, we focus specifically on reading and spelling and executive function. Um, we take a look at the history of that student. We take a look at the history, the parent's perspective and the teacher's perspective, if we can get it. And um, we provide an evaluation and a recommendation for interventions. And we meet with schools to help them to implement our suggestions. Um, and our assessments are conducted, as with others, one-on-one. -on -one, um, and based on the needs of the student. So some students may need all of the assessments and some may only need a few. Um, the pros to this are it's objective. It's outside of the school. There's no bias. Um, and it, it allows um, us to do some assessments that the school does, which makes it a little bit more acceptable to them from a school-based um, evaluation because we do some of the same assessments, it makes it more, uh, so it makes it more acceptable for them. Um, we really focus on reading and spelling in a far more uh, concentrated effort than what the school does. So we can really get down to the nitty gritty of what's going on from performance perspective. Unlike um, the educational psychologist who will go into other more, more, um, base components to why this child's having trouble. Okay. And just for clarification, by educational schools, uh, educational psychologist, 
You're not talking about a school psychologist. You're talking about like a clinical, a PhD, CID. Okay. Clinical psychologist. Okay. Sorry. That's a good point. Um, so um, a lot of the, uh, the sounds and syllables um, assessment that's done, which is the program, the intervention program we use, um, provides a very classroom-oriented spelling and reading assessment and handwriting assessment um, that will allow us to identify where that child's making some mistakes. And it's also something that's very relatable to teachers. So I can show them this and go, okay, this is the grade level we're talking about. And this is the type of mistakes that we're seeing. And that puts him at this grade level for performance, for reading and spelling, which helps the teacher buy in because it's something they are easily able to relate to. Um, so as the evaluator, we also provide support for teachers and parents and um, support staff for these, for these kids, which um, that means going into IEP meetings. That means having conversations about um, the need possibly for other services, um, whether it be psychological or educational or coaching of some kind for parents or for the student. Um, it, it's not all necessarily based on the educational intervention that we may or may not provide. So the evaluation that we provide is separate from any intervention that we provide, but it does allow for some support services. Um, we are not licensed as clinical anything or other, psychologically speaking, um, but we also might make some recommendations for um, more basic um, services like vision tests or audiology tests that should be done outside of the school because it can be done with more accuracy and more depth than they would see at the school. So those are some of the benefits of working with this company. The cons are cost. Um, there's, a, there's a cost associated with it that is not covered by insurance. Um, and it is not a comprehensive evaluation. It is not meant to be, it does not propose to be, but it is for reading, spelling, and executive function only. Um, and it doesn't provide services or evaluation for other learning disabilities that may be comorbid or occurring at the same time. And we can only make recommendations to the student team. It's un unlike the school that is part of the, the team that creates the intervention, we can only make res recommendations. And we're not allowed to I diagnose a disability. That would be requiring outside services other than what we provide, so additional cost to the parent. Um, the other part is uh, for the pros is that our evaluation, which is a kind of accepted more readily by the school can sometimes pr present information that causes them to do another evaluation or to expand the evaluation that they did the initial time. So um, by having our additional evaluation, we can kind of support the school in being more focused in their evaluation. I was gonna ask you when, when you go back to the very beginning of this process, when there's that 
right when we started this podcast, you know, there's that initial request for a meeting, et cetera, and then they're look, parents are looking at options. This could be done prior to a request for a school-based evaluation. It could be done after. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And then, then and sort of it's a, it's a cycle of that, yes. that provides additional information back. Absolutely. And that's the other thing is that while the school may only do an evaluation every three years, we typically do one every six months to a year. A lot of the evaluations that we do should not be done sooner than six months um, just because we don't want the students to learn the test and then have a, you know not valid information to, to, pr- to proceed forward with. But um, we typically do evaluations at six months or a year um, using the same assessment so we can see we can compare apples to apples. And that doesn't always happen in the school because you've got different teachers and the, the state may change the CMAS test or they change it to something else or they may, um, the NWEA maybe changes their test. So one year to the next may not be valid, a comparison. So that's one of the benefits. And one of the drawbacks is we only do it every six months, whereas the school may say that they're doing it every couple of weeks. Can you talk a little bit about sort of logistics and, and costs and all those kinds of things? So when a parent decides that this might be an option for them, they need to find somebody like yourself who does this. And how does that go? How does that process work in, in terms of connecting with them? And So they will call me and then we will do an initial evaluation that the parents fill out. It's kind of like... Um, a history of the child's development. Um, were they walking at the right age? Did they have any surgeries? Did they have ear infections that might impact their ability to um, make out certain sounds? Um, any medical background they might have? Any um, interventions that might have been done by an occupational or physical or speech therapist that may have been done as a child or in earlier years of schooling. They may have had them working with those people. But they also ask for family history. Um, it's pretty extensive, um, and it gives us a better picture of the child, and so I will send that out to them after an initial conversation on the phone. And... Um, from there, we schedule the evaluation and try to provide a report with recommendations within two weeks. Um, the school evaluation obviously takes 60 days, as we said earlier. Um, it may not take that long, but under the circumstances, they're pretty busy, so it may take, may take that long. Um, and that may, as we've talked about earlier too, that impetus to try and start something right off when you find something that's not functioning for that child, that 60 days might seem like 60 years. Um, so that's another thing to consider. When parents are shopping around, somebody listening to this might be in Western Colorado or they might be in another state or wherever. When I, I, I know you have a lot of credentials and a lot of experience doing this. If a parent's living somewhere else or if they're just beginning this process and trying to find somebody qualified to do this kind of an evaluation, do you have any suggestions for what they should look for in the, um, in the clinician or in the educator? Are there any – how do they kind of parse out who, who they want to go to? Because there's probably other people that focus on other subjects or, or other areas. Do you have any suggestions or recommendations around that? Yeah, actually, um, inter- the International Dyslexia Association has a website that will help you connect with providers around the country um, and even internationally if that's what you need. Um, 
Their website is interdis.org. And another option would be alta.org, all caps, A-L-T-A.org. They also, they are the certifying body that um, certifies people for academic language therapy, which is what interventionists are called. And it's a national board certifying agency. So they have um, a list of providers that some of them will be labeled as speech therapists, some of them will be labeled as reading interventionists, but we all have to sit for the same exam. So they'll have certain acronyms after their name that will um, tell you if they're, they're legitimate. Okay, that's super helpful information. So, you, so you've covered three different options. The do nothing, and we use that loosely because you're not really doing nothing. The school-based evaluation, the evaluation with an educational professional like yourself, and then is there another option that, that parents can look at doing? Yes. Um, the last option is a clinical psychologist um, who does educational assessments. So the clinical educational psychologist um, will do a more intensive and more comprehensive evaluation that will delve into a myriad of options that are comorbid or that occur typically with the type of behaviors and skills that you're seeing. And that information will be given to them at the beginning of, before you even are given an appointment, you'll be asked to provide certain information on on that child and then you'll probably have an introductory meeting that will talk to you a little bit more about your concerns and what you're seeing and help to kind of put it in perspective. And then at that point, they'll schedule you for an evaluation, and then based on what you've given them for information, they will, and what they find as they're doing the evaluation, to help them understand what assessments really need to be done. And that, that may develop over the course of the evaluation. So that's something to consider is you may have started out with a reading problem that you were concerned about, but find out that there are other components like possibly ADHD or possibly being on the autism spectrum that may be impacting what your child is or a processing disorder that your child is having to deal with, but that come out as a reading problem or may compound an existing reading problem. So the thing that's I think that's great about the more comprehensive evaluation is you really get to see what's going on with your child. And that way, you not only know what to deal with now, but you also know what might develop in the future um, and what problems they might have in the future as this child develops. Because they do go through stages and things change and different requirements of these children in different ages of school or levels of school and life are going to cause different problems. And so knowing what this baseline is for this child may help you and help them to have a better understanding of who they are and what might be impacting their behavior and their circumstances. Sure, those are all really great points. And you know, this option, like all the other ones you listed, have they have pros and cons. And um, so from your perspective, what are some of those for uh, a private comprehensive eval? Well, I think the the pros are, as we said, it's comprehensive. You're going to see the whole child. You're not going to just see a reading evaluation. You're not going to just see what a school can provide or what 
a school um, evaluation may include, which is quote unquote academic. Um, they may be able to take insurance, so it might be a little less costly. Um, they can diagnose a student. So if going down the road, if there's also an ADHD um, diagnosis, you may find that some medication may be warranted, and that would help in the ability to get that, um, get that medication for your child. Or maybe it's cognitive behavioral therapy. That's another thing that maybe you could have paid for by insurance, but until there's a diagnosis that's formally done by a, by a clinical psychologist, you aren't going to be able to get that through your insurance. So those are things to understand. Plus, you have an objective person who's very looking at this in a very scientific way that is not as, in, as um, involved, just like the Vector LLC, in the behavior and in the daily maintenance of this child. So it's a more objective of you. It's a more scientific of you. Um, and they have access to additional resources. Um, they have access to psychological counseling that may be really important for both the student and the parent. And um, so some of the cons, unfortunately, are cost. Um, there's not much we can do about that. Um, and sometimes um, the weight of what's been done in the clinical setting is not accepted by the academic people. Um, and that's, that's, to me, very confusing, but it's the way that it's handled. Yeah, I think like we talked about earlier in the episode, uh, clinical psychologists will look at clinical criteria exactly. as a psychologist to make that determination. A school-based educational classification is based on, as you said, you know, teacher feedback and how the child is doing in that classroom compared to others at their grade level and those kinds of things. So they may be looking at different criteria. Exactly. And and the question that's that you kind of beg to ask is if a lot of our students aren't meeting proficiency and Johnny's not meet, meeting grade level expectations, what are we are we gauging him on what the rest of the class is doing and maybe the lower the the expectations are lower because we have a whole classroom, 20, two-thirds of the classroom isn't meeting proficiency. So, but do we want Johnny to be performing at that mediocre level or do we want him to be performing at grade level, which is what? Uh, this really pertains to twice exceptional children too. And that's a, that's a whole different That's topic, another conversation. <laughs> that's, you know, students who may be performing at classroom level, but their their academic achievement is much lower than their then it should be based on their intellectual abilities, and so you've got that discrepancy. But that that's a whole yeah. that's a whole different topic. And, and if you if you have a child that's diagnosed with dyslexia, you have to also understand that dyslexia is not low IQ. It's not lack of desire. They tend to work twice as hard as every other student that's out there just to maintain their level of uh, of competency, which may be significantly lower, but not necessarily intellectually lower. Um, and so that's a really important thing to remember is dyslexia in the past has always been considered something that was a lower IQ diagnosis. And the reality is, is there tend to be average or above average. And so you have a lot of these kids that are also twice exceptional when you think about their ability to hide their challenges until later on in life. Maybe we get a fifth grader who's coming in with reading issues. 
It's not always the younger kids. I've had some, some of my clients are 55 years old with PhDs, and they just find out that they have dyslexia and are trying to figure out how the world really works, even though they've accomplished so much. They got through on intelligence and hard work. Exactly. Without those academic skills or not as proficient. Yeah, that's incredible, exactly. really. It's a testament to their their work ethic and, and really their, their perseverance. Absolutely. So yeah, a lot of times this is their, the twice exceptional students especially are, um, they cover it up and, and you will see issues, you'll see glimmers of it here and there, but not enough to diagnose, which is why getting a clinical diagnosis so important for some of the, especially for kids that you think, my gosh, Johnny is so smart. Why is he struggling to read? That's when you might want to consider the clinical evaluation especially um, because there could be a lot of really great strengths that this child is using to prop himself up. Your point about dyslexia is fantastic and I will kind of bring this to an end but there's one last thing I wanted to ask you about. You talked about the mindset that's important to go into this. Do you have anything to share about parent intuition about because you had just touched on if if Johnny is seems like he should be doing better but he's not you know you don't have any data maybe at that point do you have any just general comments about you, you talked about how the parent really should be driving the school bus but as a parent if you have those feelings do you trust those is what what's your experience around that well there's a fine line between trusting your intuition and being a helicopter parent and and there's a lot of social pushback for both um, you, if your intuition is telling you that there's something not quite right, you should probably follow you in, your intuition and get more evaluation done, whether it's in the school or outside of the school. Um, that being said, um, there, you know, there are a lot of, uh, the other thing I think you need to think about too, is how much are you doing for your child and how much is your child able to do on his own? I think that's a, a better indicator sometimes of, you know, something's not right. It, how much am I doing for Johnny? Am I getting Johnny's clothes together ready and he's in fifth grade? Mm, maybe there's something, you know, we need to be looking at a little bit closer. There might be something else going on. Um, so I think that, you know, in some of these online um, resources that we gave earlier, the LD Online, um, International um, Dyslexia Association, um, and, and some of the others, I think, are really, they have some really great information as to markers to look for and things to consider. And, and so I would highly recommend if you have any intuition about or gut reaction to what your child's doing, I would highly recommend looking at those websites and seeing if there are things there that are, oh, I didn't think about that, or, you know, Johnny can't do a nursery rhyme or can't rhyme words and he's in third grade. Um, then those might be indicators of, yeah, your intuition is right. Maybe you should look further into this. That makes sense. This has been a incredibly informative and really interesting discussion. I thank you very much for coming on Absolutely. and talking about this. You've said several things that trigger that I learned a bunch from what you've said. I'm sure that people listening to this, this is going to be really helpful. It might require listening to it over and over again. I'll try to put some of the, the basics in kind of our show notes and obviously your contact information and all those kinds of things so people can find you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think 
I'll have to even go back through it a few times and just kind of absorb all you said because we talked about this. Yeah, we wanted to pack it all into one episode. Yeah, it's a lot of information. So, um, and once again, if the information is at the end of the the podcast, don't hesitate to call and I'll try to clarify any questions you have. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope you come back on again. Yeah, thanks. All right. As an afterword to this discussion, Kim asked that I point out that the information and recommendations you just heard applies not only to young or elementary age children, but learners all the way through high school and beyond. Many clients who see Kim's evaluations, as well as those of clinical psychologists, have completed college, become parents, and are working in their careers. It's never too late to find out how you learn, what your gifts are, and where a learning challenge may be slowing you down or keeping you from reaching your potential. That's it from us today. As always, you can find more information as well as resources on our website, individualmatters.org. We hope you'll join us at the next podcast, where we'll continue to explore topics around successful living, learning and education, and child development, and share ways to help you live a more positive and fulfilling life. The preceding information is not intended to provide or serve as medical, clinical, or educational advice. Individual Matters is not responsible for the accuracy of guest statements. All information should be validated independently. Please consult with your doctor, mental health provider, attorney, or other appropriate professionals before making any personal decisions for yourself or those in your care.